The New York Prosecutors Training Institute is pleased to present an encore podcast presentation of Jed Painter from the Nassau County District Attorney's Office discussing criminal justice changes that take effect on January 1, 2020. Thank you very much. Um, it's a good audience. Uh, I've given this presentation actually probably about a dozen times now to members of the defense. I change it for my audience, but members of the defense bar, local legislators, upstate offices. And I always get good questions at the end of every single presentation, very thoughtful questions that I myself hadn't thought of. And I take those, and I've actually put them, the answers back in, or at least my believed answers back into the presentation. So each time I do it, it gets longer and longer. And now I'm in front of a very, very knowledgeable crowd. So I'm, I'm anticipating some hard-hitting questions, perhaps, at the end of it. Um, so there's, there's a great audience here, as far as people who I know are very knowledgeable about this. There might be people here who have been faking it um, throughout these meetings. You know, just, just like, yeah, it's a big concern. So now you don't have to. Um, now you don't have to. So I'm, I'm taking this. A little far back in some places, so forgive me if you know it and you're like, come on, we sat through the best practices. But throughout this, you'll see some practice tips and maybe some solutions to some of the issues we've been fumbling with. And, uh, and, at, and you know, at the very least, if you've seen it all, if you've heard it all, if you've thought of all the tricks, there probably will be stuff in here that will always make you think a little bit more for your own office's needs. So I hope you, hope you, you take something away from this. All right. So uh, I have two main halves, the first part being bail and the second half being discovery. Bail reform is actually securing order reform. Uh, bail reform just flows off the tongue a little bit easier, but they were affecting all securing orders. What I need to do uh, before I get to the three scenarios for the continued use of bail as we know it is first talk about sort of the new setting, the new philosophy of what bail is about in New York State. So I'm going to start all the way at the beginning in the sense that there are nine forms of bail. They're on the books right now. There still will be nine forms of bail on the books after January 1st, 2020. And in fact, in the lead up to these reforms, there was a lot of uh, effort, especially uh, by Vera Institute and a lot of the downstate offices, to uh, get some of these forms more popularly used, like surety bonds and appearance bonds. Because there had been too long a focus on just two forms of bail, cash and the insurance bail bond industry. I put nine forms of bail, but only post five, because within these categories, you have unsecured appearance bonds, partially secured appearance bonds. That's essentially where you're assigned a promissory note saying, if I don't come back, there will be a civil judgment against me in the amount that you set. That's why sometimes you hear in the federal system, $5 million bail is set on some white-collar person. They're not actually held in on that, and they actually don't post that. They actually walk out with the knowledge that there will be a $5 million judgment on them automatically if they fail to appear. Um, with the surety bond, that's friend, that's family, that's a neighbor, that's an employer, that's some guy who was shaked down in the courtroom, that's somebody who posts on your behalf that's not a professional company, and again, partially and unsecured are options there. Um, under the statute, I should point out that when there's partial securing, the judge can't say, yeah, 99% partial securing. 
it's a max of 10%. Okay? And they didn't touch this, but I bring this up first because I'm going to come back to it as something that's been enhanced by the, uh, by, not the sentencing reforms, the bail reforms. Okay. To continue using bail, there's three main points that I want to get across. The first, the court has to direct at least three different mechanisms for a defendant to post bail, and at least one of those three has to be a partially secured or unsecured surety bond. Why they picked that, I have no idea. But what I do know is it's sort of irrelevant. Um, what I feel is going to happen is just a prediction. We all know sort of our court practices. The ones who run the courts more than anything else is the court clerks and the paperwork. And the absence of paperwork means an absence of a methodology. So when you see the nine forms of bail and only two being used, those are the things that the clerks and the judges are used to dealing with. By injecting a third form of bail and making it mandatory and making it something we haven't seen before, my prediction is that you're going to have the clerk, clerical staff and OCA promoting forms for all of this. Okay? So that's going to be an important point as we come back. This, oh, I already had that slide. The second, and this is a hard one to wrap your head around, ROR is mandated unless, it's like a bar exam question, ROR is mandated unless the court makes an individualized determination of flight risk. Now, in the past, people had said, hey, you know, bail is all about flight risk in New York State. There's no public safety. I think that's a lot of crap. I think back, you know, in the system we have now, there's a lot of room for us to have made public safety arguments. There was the character of the defendant. There was some domestic violence-specific enumerations about the defendant's conduct, okay? There was a lot of um, uh, ways that we were legally permissible to inject that into our arguments, but no more. Now the entirety of the bail is codified time and time again. It's all about ensuring the defendant's return to court. Coupling that mandate on every single individualized determination where you've departed from ROR, the court has to now put its explanation on the record or in writing. What that does is it enhances the ability for a 530-30 bail review of a local court's action. You get a do-over, essentially, and there's now a record for why there's a do-over. This is now the new mindset of the courts, and it has to be. The least restrictive means of ensuring the return to court have to be utilized. If it's not, that determination is subject to reversal on bail review. Now, that's sort of easy to think of and say in a rule, but now let's play it out a little bit. You have to set three forms of bail. You have to set an unsecured surety bond as one of them, uh, or a partially secured, and then say you do a cash insurance-based bail bond. It is entirely possible under the new regime that if there is uh, a judge who makes an individualized determination to set bail and set those three forms of bail, that there could be a 530-30 bail review, that those three forms themselves were not the least restrictive means to ensure return to court. Why did you set the partially secured? You could have set an unsecured. Why did you set a surety bond? You could have set an appearance bond. Why did you, why, why, there's going to be tons of this, and there's going to be no limit to the ability to get a 530-30 bail review in superior court and I would actually say another thing that adds to the frequency of those, compounding that, is the fact that the jail populations will be decreased, diminished. So when you're defense counsel and you actually have an in-client, it's almost now going to be the point of malpractice not to try to get them out with a 530-30 bail review because you have so much more uh, incentive to do so and so much more time to do so. Okay. 
That having been said, that new scene having been set and those new rules having been laid, there are now three scenarios to continue using bail as we know it. The first one, which you're familiar with, is qualifying offenses. Qualifying offenses, violent felonies, not Berg 2 of a dwelling. Berg 2 involving the you know, harm to another displays it. The, the 140.25 sub 1 is still on the table. 140.25 sub 2 is not on the table. Okay, Not Rob 2. Felony sex offenses. I put Article 130s all because they separated it out. I know Article 130s are largely subsumed by felony sex offenses, but think of that as misdemeanor Article 130s. Non-drug Class A felonies, Bridget Brenda doesn't care about that at all. <laughs> Felony terrorism offenses, you'd think those were violent, but no, there's money laundering in support of terrorism, and if somebody's funding ISIS, we want to be able to hold them under their least restrictive means. Incest offenses and DV contempts. I have a little bit of a problem. Well, listen, I have a problem with all this. This is going to be a common refrain, but DV contempts only. Think, that, think of that. So when you have two neighbors who are in a dispute, and they're actually generally fearful, and now the neighbor gets an order of protection against them, but they violate it. They go stand on their neighbor's front lawn, and they intimidate them. That's not going to be grounds, okay? The contempts are limited to DV. Witness intimidation and tampering, that could be your option or out. Major traffickers is the only drug anything that's in this mix. Conspiracy to murder. You, you can conspire to do a lot of things and get released, but murder, if you conspire to murder, they can keep you in. Child sexual performances, lowering a child, and that's it. Those are the only uh, scenarios. I'm going to put the actual statute titles up there. This is all in the written material, so you don't have to take too many copious notes. But the, um, that's it. When you're now in arraignments and you're trying to say, can I make a bail application from jump, those are the statutes you have to deal with. Things that aren't there, and I know it's hard to see things that are not there, the whole swath of vehicular crimes, the whole swath of drug crimes, um, even some simple things like escape, you know, they're, they're just not on there, okay? And so if you process things a little differently, what's not on there is most misdemeanors and most nonviolent felonies. I get the question a lot, how did this list get assembled? What was the metric that the legislature used to put together the bucket? Okay, having been involved a little bit in begging throughout this about the bucket, here's what I could tell you. The legislature for a long time was biting on Governor Cuomo's proposal that had to do a lot with public safety. Um, the, there was going to be a detention hearing. There's going to be basically no cash bail anymore. You were either out or pretrial detained, if we all can remember that phase of the legislative push. And so in that course, they, they wanted that bucket of offenses that were violent enough, the threat to public safety, that uh, prosecutors needed to be able to put their hand up and get somebody in. So that's how this list was assembled. It was assembled from a perspective of violence and public safety and pretrial detention. Then with a week left to go in session, sort of the governor's idea of pretrial de detention was not passing through the assembly. The assembly model took over, and the assembly model was risk of flight. Okay, If everybody had known risk of flight from January, this list would look a lot different. This would have to do with eligible persistent felony offenders, people who are facing 25 to life, people who are facing a felony drugs, people who have a reason to flee. But nonetheless, 
they got us to assemble a bucket of violence for a risk of flight determination. So that's why there's not, there probably would be some overlap, but it would look a little differently. So if you're wondering how that happened. Okay, the second way that you can get bail in New York State is if the defendant asks for it themselves. You are always allowed to put yourself in. Okay. Here's the actual text. With respect to any charge for which bail or remand is not ordered, blah, 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 a defendant may at any time request that the court set bail in a nominal amount requested by the defendant. They put the request twice. You'll see that a lot. Now, the question that people have asked me and my other presidents is, does this mean we can still do diversion? Can we somehow manipulate them into saying the, the program will be good for me, so I volunteer that if I flunk, then I go in? No, you can't do that for two reasons. Um, the first is the voluntariness is at any time, and the revocation of your voluntariness can happen at any time. The second thing is, even if you could say, well, no, you volunteered once, and you're not allowed to change your mind, no take-backs, there's like a no take-backs cost in a diversion program, the bail amount has to be set in the amount requested by the defendant. So the defendant says, I want it to be $5. The defendant tells the court, $5, $10, a quarter, a dollar, whatever it's going to be, okay? The court doesn't sell it as a defendant. So even if you said, no, no gives these backsies, you said you wanted to be in, you're in, they said, okay, fine, well, here's the five bucks, and they're out. So it's, this is not the valuable stream for diversion. You're going to have to find that somewhere else, sort of in post-contracting land. And the third one is the 53062B scenarios, which I wish I could call something else because that's a mouthful. It'll be called some hearing someday, the Chris Hammond hearing. I don't know. But when it goes to up and back in five years, this will have a name. So now this is important not, uh, language that we should all have. This is sort of that first bite of the apple theory that, yes, um, you were out on any offense, any offense, okay? Could be the A1 drug now. Okay, could be the vehicular crime now. If you're at liberty, it's grounds for revoking that securing order and fixing bail when the court has found by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant did one of four things. And I'll show it to you, but I'm going to come back to the slide a lot because everything I underlined is very important. The first one is persistently and willfully failed to appear in court in that court action. The second one is violated an OP, basically felony contempt. The third is witness intimidation tampering. And the fourth seemed to be, at first glance, the most reasonable, committed an additional felony while at liberty on a felony. So you think in your mind, like, that sounds good. That sounds like, okay, that's a consolation prize. They all got the first bite of the apple, but they committed another felony. So now I get to do a 53062B application, revoke their bail, they're in. Not so fast. The problem is, if I can get to it, The problem, yeah, okay, I'm going back. The problem is this underlying clause here, by clear and convincing evidence, okay? That's a pretty high standard. That's beyond probable cause to arrest or file a charge. It's beyond reasonable cause to believe in the grand jury. It's beyond the reasonable cause to believe standard that you have in your felony hearings. Clear and convincing evidence is really right, right below trial. So let's say you have a new event, a new felony, that you want to prove under one of your four, uh, under actually any of these, but let's focus on the fourth one. You have to prove by clear and convincing evidence they commit that additional felony. Okay? 
that sounds to me like a hearing with a big setup. Um, there's some notes in my green sheet about how you could possibly use your grand jury transcripts if the case has gone that far. Uh, but that's one of the bigger issues with the case. I have another suggestion on how to overcome that in a second, but I want everybody to uh, be cognizant of that little gap. Another thing I want you to be cognizant of as you look at this list, one major hole in it is the, what I would call the three nons problem. Non-compliance with a non-monetary condition of a non-qualifying offense. If you're out on an A1 felony on non-monetary conditions and you violate those non-monetary conditions, that is not a ground to revoke your securing order. Okay? So think about electronic monitoring, which we'll get into in a second. Let's think you got your Mexican cartel person in New York City for one time only, making the drop. You collar them. You seize the stash. They were leaving the next day anyway because they were just there making the drop. You strap them with electronic monitoring. You notice that they're going back to Texas. You send the team after them. You capture them. You bring them back to New York City. You bring them before the judge. You say, judge, they violated their electronic monitoring terms. The judge is going to care and wag their finger, but that's not a revocation ground. Okay? They can't do anything about that non-compliance with the non-monetary condition on a non-qualifying offense. Qualifying offense, you're in business. Okay. So just to review, those are your three scenarios for using bail. I'd say the weakest, there's, there's weaknesses in all of them, uh, but 53062B scenarios need a lot of strengthening in the next legislative session. And people should be encouraged to document any issues they have with that. Now, um, miscellaneous issues, as far as remand, because uh, people always ask, what about remand? If the defendant is charged with a qualifying offense which is a felony, you can remand them. That's true. And that actually, I've heard from the executive chamber time and time again, is what they want. They want prosecutors to say what they mean, and they want judges to do what they mean. So before when they're setting astronomical amounts of bail, they said, just set remand. You mean remand, just say it. That's what they wanted to do. The caveat here is, if that's deemed the least restrictive means of ensuring the defendant's return, that's the, um, again, the whole philosophy behind this movement. So again, if you have a client who is remanded, I have to believe, as a defense attorney, you're going for that 530-30 bail review saying that is not the least restrictive means. You could have said $5 million bail. You could have said $10 million bail. What is this? Um, Remand is, uh, remains available. This is a statute that was untouched. Once you're convicted of a Class A felony, Article 130, Class B, or C, when you have the 18 up, 18 down rule. And then the third one, which is important because it's left behind, is if there's reasonable cause to believe that the defendant, while at liberty on a felony charge, committed a Class A violent felony, intimidated a victim or witness. Now, that might seem familiar to you. And it's stupidly familiar because if you flash over to what I was just showing you, this is the new statute that has to do with revocation, the 53062B, that I just went through this whole thing about clear and convincing evidence and uh, when they're um, releasable. And if you'll remember, four of them, there was, while at liberty on a felony, committed another felony. Or while at liberty, uh, intimidated a witness or victim. To get the remand on somebody who's out on a felony, commits a violent felony, it's easier because you only have to prove reasonable cause to believe. To get bail set on them, because this statute only deals with fixing bail, that's the other reason why I underlined it. That's about fixing bail, there's no remand in there. 
On a 5362B, by clear and convincing evidence, if I show somebody commit a violent felony while out on a felony, I can get bail on them. However, if I show by reasonable cause to believe that they commit a violent felony while out on a felony, I can remand them. It's easier to remand than set bail under the new uh, construct. Okay? So I note in some of my writings that the 5362B scenario doesn't qualify for remand per se, but there is overlap here and there. The final thing which they left behind, this is not part of the revisions to my, my memory, this is something that was in the statute and remained there, is um, under 53062E, if the new felony is a class A felony, any class A felony, drugs, BFO or one of the witness intimidations, a court can remand the defendant for 72 hours pending the bail revocation hearing, okay? So that explains how you're going to get your stuff together for your clear and convincing evidence hearing or your reasonable cause to believe hearing if you're going for remand, okay? That's how you can detain them. You've got 72 hours to prep that hearing with them remanded. You get an additional 72 hours of showing of good cause. It's sort of the new 18080, but it's the 53062-8, okay? All right. So one thing I um, uh, was mentioning, it's in the... Um, it's in the green sheet that's part of your, your materials, is the virtue of bail jumping now. Bail jumping too is a class E felony, okay? When you are at liberty, upon condition that you'll subsequently appear in a charge uh, on an open felony case, if you don't show up within the 30 days, that's bail jumping in the second degree, which also for our purposes is the additional felony, right there. So one of the practice pointers you can tell your police is, listen, if they go for a walk on one of your cases or commit a new, a new felony, or, sorry, if they go for a walk on one of your cases and you're not finding them, they, they warrant it on a felony, don't pick them up right away. Don't be their Uber. You're not going to get bail on them for that violation. Wait the 30 days, and then you've got your bail jumping charge waiting for them. You reprocess them. Well, I'm going way far ahead. You reprocess them on the bail jumping too. That's the only thing I can offer you on that ground, okay? Of course, if public safety is an issue, you don't want to wait the 30 days, but I just point that out. If you don't wait the 30 days, you got nothing, especially if it's a new non-qualifying offense. Okay. Now, this is for everybody upstate, because this is one thing that I've noticed a lot. If you talk to anybody in New York City or Long Island, nobody has an idea that this statute exists, 530-20 sub 2, but everybody who ever practiced in a justice court north of New York City knows about 530-20 sub 2. It's like, it's your bread and butter. So it's, it's sort of an upstate downstate disconnect. But this is the grounds by which that justice or town court or village court can remand somebody um, uh, as the case is pending before Superior Court. So if you're charged with a defendant, a Class A felony, or you have two previous felony convictions, they're not allowed to release them. They have to hold them on remand. And that, again, has been, been a bread and butter provision of upstate operations. They screwed the statute up pretty bad. Um, this is uh, what they did. This looks like a cut and paste error to me, tell you the truth. So they were adding release under non-monetary conditions whenever they saw order recognizance. I'm pretty sure they did a find and replace and had to add that extra phrase, release under non-monetary conditions, and they just screwed this one up. Because what they did was, and this takes a lot of mental gymnastics to get to, that word accept used to be 
the, the, the key is that you can't order, you can't release them, and therefore you have to remand them. That except used to set up the remand. Now they actually put, each. they actually put remand, commit to the custody of the sheriff, before the word accept. Okay? So they put the whole bevy of options that when somebody comes before the town court or the justice court uh, on a class A felony or has two prior felony convictions, you, um, the court may order recognizance, release under denominations, or authorized bail, or remand them, except the court may now not authorize recognizance or bail when the defendant is charged with those things. So they, they screwed that clause up, so now actually you have two options, as I read it. You can remand them, or you can release them under non-monetary conditions. A question has come up often about post-conviction. Um, what did this do to the, to the realm of post-conviction? Um, I've looked at this a lot, and I can't give you absolute guidance. I just believe, and I've cited in some places in the, in the written materials, why I believe that after conviction, this entire rubric goes away. This entire rubric of qualifying offenses in 536-2Bs goes away, and a judge can go back to our current system and set bail on you with liberty. I do think the thing that... Um, uh, will remain, though, is that idea that you have to ensure the, 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 the philosophy of ensuring the return to court and the least restrictive means. But that having been said, I think after conviction, I don't think qualifying offenses are non-qualifying offenses. I think if, if Bridget Brennan's office convicts an A1 person uh, at the point of conviction, you can then just ask for bail. Um, we'll see what judges respond to that. Okay. Application restrictions that everybody should be aware of. We used to really rely, there was a lot of things that we could make in our application that we used to rely on for, um, for making a very sound argument. Judge, this person's an eligible person, is a felony offender, we found DNA at the scene, and they're only here from Pennsylvania, uh, and they're going to go back. They've actually told the detective they're running as soon as they can. Those, um, those three things that we usually would have outlined, they erased. You're not allowed to talk about weight of evidence, potential sentence, or community ties. They replace them with different language. You could talk about their activities in history. You could talk about the charges. And you could talk about the conviction record, if any, and prior failures. I can still make out the sentencing with what they left me. I can still say they're ineligible persistent. What we've really lost, if you look at this list versus the old list, what the net loss was is community ties and weight of evidence. That's what's not there anymore. Potential sentence you can still, again, squeak through. So just you have to be aware, and your ADAs have to be aware, they have to talk a little differently. Because that's a huge, I, I think that's a huge gag in, in saying, like, this is a very strong case, or the defendant's not from around here, for, they're, they're from another country. Okay. Okay, so now... Backing this all up, or actually, I should say, front-loading all this, is the Tickets Not Jail campaign. Um, appearance tickets will now be required on misdemeanors and Class E felonies. Now, I know there's some exceptions to misdemeanors, like absconding from a parole program, but just for purposes of this, all misdemeanors and Class E felonies that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, those all have to be mandatory appearance tickets. Okay? The station house bail provisions were completely repealed and they have to be returnable as soon as possible with a 20-day limit. We've had our own discussions with the police about how we might need every single nickel of those 20 days to uh, obey our discovery obligations. 
I'm not sure how that's going to read. I'm not sure how that's going to even be challenged. But essentially, that 20-day model is sort of a fix. I could easily see you want to go shorter on public safety issues that you find outstanding, like you want somebody to return tomorrow. Okay. There are exceptions. Uh, and these are very interesting to, to note here. So the open warrant, I, I, the actual language of the statute, is referring to an open warrant in New York State. That's an open New York State warrant, okay? Uh, because they, um, uh, it's because they labeled what kind of warrant, a superior court warrant or a local criminal court warrant, and those terms are defined in the CPL as being New York State courts. The second subdivision of exception is a failure to appear within two years. And in that, I think they screwed up. I don't think they meant to do this. I don't think they meant to do any of this. I don't think they knew what they were doing. But in the second, second point, this says failure to appear in court proceedings in the last two years. They don't actually talk about a court in New York State. And that's huge. Thank goodness they screwed that one up. Because that's what allows you to do the triple I check to see if they went from any, the Canadian Court of Justice, the, the Pennsylvania Court, Florida. Without that provision, if somebody wanted to evade justice for murdering somebody in Florida or California, is flee to New York and just commit a bunch of E felonies and A misdemeanors and always give a different name and never show up to court, because that, that would have been huge. All right. So. You need, uh, if you need an OP or a DMV restriction, and remember, just because your license is suspended, it can be suspended again. We all do the 511-2s where it's, you know, three on three, eight on five, whatever it's going to be. Article 130 are domestic violence offenses, escape three or bail jumping two, duh, and uh, diversion. Now, diversion has the asterisks because it's not really an exception to the appearance ticket mandates. It's an exception to the timing requirement of returnability in 20 days. I don't know how diversion programs are going to survive, but they, at least they gave us that pleasant gift. This last one, it's easy to gloss over. Because, first of all, it's a very long section of the DAT exceptions that I paraphrased to need courts help with a medical or mental health issue. That's actually pretty important, though. Um, the, uh, the, the longer version is something to the effect of, you know, the police officer has, despite diligent good faith efforts to assess it themselves, is, is unable to address, is unable to uh, meet the needs of the defendant, so must return to the court for the court's uh, inter interjection in a medical or mental health issue. So something very long and complicated like that. A huge concern in, in meeting with the police and talking to police unions and whatnot is this is a huge liability issue for your counties. Um, as it was explained to me, and it's, there's a lot of logic to it, if now in statutory, in statutory land uh, an officer is responsible for saying, I need to bring you to court to deal with your medical issue, they, as, as it's been, the county attorneys get claims either way. So if you fail to bring them in for the medical and they go out and kill somebody or kill themselves, huge notice of claim. You got it wrong. If you, if you set them out, uh, sorry, so if you hold them in, Notice a claim, because you shouldn't have held me in. Um, so they're just seeing this, and they hate it. They hate the fact that now the, the officers now have to be psychiatrists at the point of arrest and determine whether you're releasable or not releasable in this world where increasingly public safety and mental health are converging. So it's just something as far as police training. The only thing you can hide behind here is making sure your police know about this and have a policy so that, at the very least, you don't have any respondeat superior liability. You can control it a little bit better, because you really want to have something locked down on that if you're a police agency. 
Courts can't issue bench warrants anymore. Uh, I've heard from judges that they don't like this rule. They uh, actually, I've even heard a few judges who want to, the first day this statute is enacted, issue a warrant right away and write an opinion on it because they feel that it's an encroachment on their powers. But for purposes of right now, courts are not able to issue warrants immediately. They have to instead delay issuance for 48 hours after notice is provided to the defendant or the defense counsel. The biggest gap here is, of course, in your DAT arraignments, where usually if I'm not going to show up, I didn't hire an attorney. So what shows up that day? Nothing, nobody. There's nobody for the court to notify. So now you're really in the realm of mailings. Uh, and hope. Okay? All right, now. There's an exception here, unless a new arrest or the production of relevant credible evidence demonstrating the failure to appear was willful. One of the bigger concerns of us from judges is what happens if this happens during trial. I'm doing a trial against, again, the Bridget Brennan A1 seller who probably would have fled the whole time, didn't flee, but now you're doing a trial and her office is doing really well, great opening statement. Evidence is pretty damning. And on day three, the defendant then thinks that their moral resolve has now crumbled and they don't want to show up anymore. Does the court have to wait 48 hours and hold that jury? Or can they proceed on their Parker warnings? My suggestion, again, in the green sheet is to have judges, and this is not something you can control, but to have judges at the commencement of the trial and with those Parker warnings incorporate some language that, listen, if you don't show up and you don't call into the court to tell why the morning of, I'm going to interpret that. The court will interpret that as a willful failure to appear, and I will issue a warrant immediately. But that's going to take the court's cooperation. But when you're meeting with your administrative judges, please bring that, that aspect up. Okay, so let's look how this uh, practically rolls out. You get the DAT, you show up at arraignment, you're pretty much getting ROR'd. I can't think of any, under this new construct, any other reason why you couldn't be ROR'd if you show up. If you don't show up, it means notice and a 48-hour stay. If you're held for arraignment, the first thing the judge asks is, is ROR appropriate? If not, they make the individualized determination on the record or in writing, and then have permission to move up that ladder to the least restrictive means to ensure your return to court. Okay. And this is that ladder, least restrictive non-monetary conditions, bail, and remand, and those are only if there's eligibility. Focusing on bail, like I said this at the beginning, but remember, there could be a ladder within a ladder when we're talking about least restrictive means because there are nine forms of bail, and they're trying to promote and promulgate more usage of forms and alternative uh, mechanisms, okay? So it would not be at all unusual to see, I think, uh, unsecured appearance bond, partially secured appearance bond, unsecured surety bond. Those are the three that the court deems after argument least restrictive. So be aware of that. Be aware of that. Be aware of the why you want the form of bail that you want, why cash is appropriate, why a surety bond won't do. Okay. One of the uh, bigger things that um, has happened is in the bail considerations, I don't have a slide on this, but one of the new things is the courts have to focus on the defendant's ability to pay. Okay? And um, there's actually a funny, meeting, a funny moment at the last governor's meeting where they went on this whole tear about the defendant's ability to pay. I pointed out that under the new rubric, because you have to have an unsecured surety bond or partially secured surety bond as one of the options, 
that's not the defendant's ability to pay. That's their neighbor's, employer's, friend's, family member's ability to pay. So is the judge looking at their ability to pay or their entire network's ability to pay? You know, the drug dealer who has a lot of friends, the gang member who has a lot of friends, the connected people. What are you looking at? They don't know. So I don't know if that ability, I think, if you read it closely enough, you should be looking at that defendant's ability to pay. That having been said, I don't think many judges are going to look that narrowly. They're going to say, ability to pay means everything. Okay. Now, least restrictive non-monetary conditions. May include any condition reasonable under the circumstances, and specifically may include restrictions on travel related to flight from jurisdiction, weapons possession, pretrial service agency monitoring, and where applicable, electronic monitoring. The first thing I want to raise here as a sort of a practice pointer is that clause. Any conditional condition reasonable under the circumstances, because in that clause is a solution to a problem that we have. I mentioned it before. The problem was that if you do not abide by a least restrictive non-monetary condition, and you are that drug dealer who's fleeing to Texas and is brought back and the judge can't do anything, um, or just anything, you're, you're somebody who just tells probation, I don't want to cooperate with you, but I'm making all my court appearance, or whatever it's going to be, whatever they're ignoring. Um, a condition that could be set, it could be, and again, this is something to get to your administrative judges about, is remember one of the bail revocation grounds, which gets universalized bail, is persistent and willful appearance at a court, court appearance. Okay? Persistent and willful failure to appear at a court appearance. Okay? Court appearances, we, we think we know, but I could see in the realm of the new environment that if you have a problem child, one of your conditions reasonable in the circumstances, you, I'm requiring you to call into court every day, every week, I want you to call into the court. I want you to check in. That counts as a court appearance. I'm making sure that you're checking in with the court. You're getting more court appearances, but don't worry, you don't have to show up for them, but you do have to call. It's an appearance by phone, by face, by Skype, whatever it's going to be. And if they don't do it, now you have a 53062B scenario because they have persistently and willfully failed to appear at their court appearances. Can you do this by yourself? No. Can you talk to your administrative judges about doing this? Absolutely, and I would. Because that is going to be the only way to fill a gap, as I can see it, in enforcement of somebody who is not compliant with non-monetary conditions. The other one, which I wrote down in the green sheet, is Judiciary Law 750, where a court always has the power to punish for contempt. But that requires a hearing as well and some notice provisions. Okay? And by contempt, I mean I ordered you to report to a pretrial service agency, and you didn't do it. So I'm holding you in contempt of court. And I can incarcerate you because you're, you're sentenced under that contempt in the middle of the trial. That and this, but I like this option better, because I think judges will latch on to the idea of uh, remote court appearances more frequently in between the court appearances if they call and check in. I think that's something that sounds reasonable and could definitely be plugged in. There hasn't been much dialogue on it. I'm hoping there's dialogue on it now. Okay. Electronic monitoring. We heard from Mike Green yesterday all the weaknesses of electronic monitoring being that right now there's nobody who can do it. It's, it's limited to for-profit entities only. And with the whole gap that I was just talking about that has to be filled, that even if you don't comply with electronic monitoring, which is the highest level of non-monetary condition, there's still nothing the court can do if it's a non-qualifying offense. Okay? That having been said, electronic monitoring, when, when and if it exists, is only available for felonies, DV misdemeanors, Article 130 offenses, and misdemeanors where the defendant has a prior BFO in the past five years. 
It's sort of that alternative idea for felonies to make us all feel safe. Unfortunately, I forgot to write a consequence for noncompliance with it. Okay, so the pretrial service agencies, again, we all know this issue, so I'm going to gloss over it. But they have to be OCA certified and reviewed. Is there a process for that? No. Um, forthcoming, yeah, TBD. Uh, pretrial service agencies, where's the money coming from? I don't know. Wasn't in there. Okay. But the pretrial service agencies have to be existing. They have to be OCA certified. They have to assist defendants in making court dates. Huge notification role. Okay? The cops, the police on the street who have to make the arrest actually enroll the defendants into the pretrial service agency system by asking the defendant their preferred method of contact. Could be your address. Could be your cell phone number. Could be your relative. Could be anything. Any form of communication they want. It has to be logged, transmitted, and utilized by the PTSA to apprise them of each and every court date. As I reviewed the statute, I found out that there was some funding for victim service agencies. No, there was absolutely no funding for victim service agencies at all. But seriously, there was a lot of money for pretrial service agencies. No, there was no money. But seriously, this time I'm actually serious. The notification infrastructure is going to be built for defendant contact by your PTSAs. So, you're doing it for one half of the criminal justice system. I would just suggest that you do be mindful because you are going to have these robo-apparatuses at the county level to alert by text, to alert by email, to alert by cell phone. As you're purchasing the software, as your probation departments or sheriff's departments or PTSAs, whatever they're developing, as they're coming online with ways and purchase orders and contracts to have these alerts, don't forget about your victims. You're going to have built the architecture anyway. If the police protocol is to ask the defendant every single way they want to be contacted, whether it's smoke signal or whatnot, ask the victims that too, all right? You're changing your DAT forms right now, hopefully, to include the information to collect from the defendant. Change your victim policies as well. Because if we're doing it for the defendants on the county dime, absolutely that same software can be used for the betterment of victims and witnesses. So, January 1, 2020. It's a long way away. We have tons of time to plan and get ready. Okay. All right, I always have a breathe break here because as I say, the discovery section is really bad. <laughs> Bail is gonna just sort of happen to us, you know? You know, public safety is a big concern, it is our concern, but more or less, that's gonna happen to us, okay? Uh, mostly to Bridget, I'm sorry. You're losing a lot of people into the world January 1, 2020. A lot of drug dealers. It, it, but it's going to happen to us, okay? And they might be sorry, and there might be news articles when, this, when things happen to us and happen to public safety, and that'll change things. Discovery, though, we have to make major operational changes. It's not going to be something that happened. We, it, we are the happening. Who's raising their hand? Yes? Yeah. Dewey, Dewey case, yeah. Yeah, okay. And our sheriff's office engaged in pre-arraignment detention on somebody you know you're not going to hold in jail. No, you can hold them. You can hold them to get that OP or the, or the DMV restriction. You can hold them. That's why you're holding them. You're holding them for the court adjudication of that order. 
with knowledge that they'll then be released. One quick related question, then I'll shut up. A not qualifying case for arraignment. The kid keeps on ripping off their parents at their house. They want him out. They want an order of protection. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't qualify as a DV case. Can you hold them to arraign them to get the order of protection? Or do they got to wait until the return date on the appearance ticket? It's any OP. If you need any type of OP, you can hold over. Not just a DV OP. Thank you. Okay. Okay, discovery. It's very complicated because discovery is very complicated. I think they thought there was pieces of paper that just lay on a desk of a DA's office and that's it, and then you turn them over. They don't realize there's cell phone downloads and different security systems with different codecs that need to be uploaded into various systems, and sometimes getting the cops to give you what they have is a big mystery, and there's digital files and there's physical files. So that graphic there just, you know, we, we, know, we know what discovery is. Now, the easiest way I can break this down is there are, I think I have nine rules of, of automatic discovery. There is no more Article 240. It is gone. It is abolished. Well, it will be abolished. January 1, 2020. There will be an entirely new Article 245. The hard part about reading these changes, I got to tell you, has been when they do a complete dump and rewrite, it's harder to compare the text of what you've gained or lost. But Hopefully, some of this will elucidate. So the first rule of automatic discovery, it applies to all items and information that relate to the subject matter of the case and are in the possession, custody, control of the prosecution or persons under the prosecution's direction of control. The first thing I want to tell you is that's all that matters. 240, let's never be deceived. I said this, I think, of best practices. 240 that we are used to right now has a laundry list of things that are discovery, the beginning and the end. If you ever disclose more than what was in 240, you are doing voluntary discovery or early discovery of Rosario or whatever it's going to be. But that was on you. You did that. Okay? 245, that laundry list that you're probably all familiar with, which is longer, it's illustrative. It's for instances. It's examples. After this clause in the statute, it says, including but not limited to. So if you did not come to peace with that yet, the only rule that matters is that one. All items and information that relate to the subject matter of the case. And, and that is a big word to remember if you're John Castellano <laughs> or anybody who's going to be working on these appellate issues. And, okay? That's a big out clause, and I'm going to show that a little bit later, that is a big out clause for things that are in the private realm. Walmart surveillance videos or home security systems. Okay? You can file, I'm skipping way ahead, but you can file a certificate of compliance with discovery obligations when you have the public realm of discovery completed, not your entire case completed. Because if it's not in your possession, custody, or control, or under people under your direction or control, you can still file. Can you be ready for trial? No, perhaps not. But you can be ready enough to give a plea offer. So that's going to be a very important distinction that I'll get to it, come back to at the end. Rule two, prosecutors are deemed to possess all items of information related to the prosecution of a charge in the possession of any New York state, and notice that state is lowercase, 
state or local police or law enforcement agency, okay? They got it, we got it. Bad news, if, and then Rachel will touch on this, if you have a state or local lab, if you have a private lab, good for you. Um, if you're using the state troopers or you're using a local police lab like the New York City Crime Lab, yeah, a little different. You have possession of all items of information related to the prosecution of the charge. Rule three, upon request, police shall make available to the prosecution, and this is again, you see this a lot. Whoever wrote this liked to use words like five times. A complete copy of complete records, um, which I'm glad they did it. It makes it uh, rather un unambiguous. They have to give you the complete copy of the complete records and files relating to the investigation of the case, the prosecution of the defendant, okay? It says request. It doesn't say upon an order. It doesn't say upon a motion to compel. And it also doesn't say when. And I know a lot of downstate offices have intake bureaus that have uh, an arrangement that at the point of a DAT, at the point of the arrest, we get stuff. And I know a lot of upstate offices don't have that. They get stuff at arraignment. And they're surprised that people are arrested and been out there. I got to tell you, with the 20-day lag time you're going to be facing in that desk appearance ticket, you have to talk to your police. That request that you're going to be giving should be from the point of arrest. There's no time limitation. should be from the point of arrest, not from the point of arraignment. You're robbing yourself of 20 days, at least 20 days, if you're not doing that, if you're not setting up your police. I know Erie County has been, you know, uh, uh, as a big county, has been trying to move in that direction. I think you all, to the extent you can, should move in that direction. And hence, I think in the, the materials for the best practices meeting, there was a standing request that our office is considering right now against draft. It needs to stay in the profession, but I went over the 10 points of that uh, request yesterday, so I won't reiterate them here. Rule four, automatic discovery must be disclosed as soon as practicable, practicable with an outside limit of 15 days after arraignment on any form of accusatory instrument, and that includes felony complaints. A little bit of a last-minute last add in there. It was there, then it wasn't, then it's back. Okay. I can't give you the definite answer on this because there will be some case law on it sooner or later, but I do believe that if you have a felony complaint that you then indict before the 15 days runs, don't worry about the felony complaint discovery. It's, it's superseded by operation of law, and now you have a new clock of discovery on your now indicted felony because it's a new arraignment that's in a different court system that divested the prior court system of its uh, clock, so to speak. Um, and if you do do indictments, I think you, you know that when you indict something, it doesn't just pop on the calendar that day. There's some administrative setup, the court clerk takes it, files it, notifies people to come in, and there's sort of a new arraignment date on the indictment. So that could get you, depending on the practice of your county, even another week. So now it's starting to add up. Maybe you have 20 days on the DAT, on an e-felony. Then you got the 15 days, and then you indict the case on day 14, maybe two weeks in. And then you have the scheduling of it. So there are ways to sort of, you know, expand the clock if you're thinking tactically, you're thinking you need to be tactical. It's, not, it's still not a lot of time, but there's something. Here's another thing. When the materials are two options, exceptionally voluminous. I don't know what exceptionally voluminous means. There's a paper that, that somebody produced out there that says they don't know what it means either. That's smart. The only thing that I would say is that word exceptionally has the same word as 3034G. Yes, which has exceptional, there's exceptional circumstances that prevented the prosecutor from getting their case together. Okay, so at least there's some linkage of that language directly. So when materials are exceptionally voluminous or 
despite diligent good faith efforts, not in the actual possession of the prosecution, you can get a 30-day extension without need. You will have to explain it. But that tells me there's not going to be a motion on it. But it tells me that somewhere after you missed your deadline, you will be called to the court, and the court will ask you, I noticed you missed your deadline. Please tell me why. And you're going to have to come up with it like, Judge, this is exceptionally voluminous. Or you can say, Judge, despite my diligence, and you're probably going to have to articulate it very well. So just that's, that's some arguments to prepare right now. And uh, examples are if you know your lab's backlog, and you get sort of a documentation of that backlog, and you have a, I mean, we're going to probably get an affidavit every month from the lab director about their current backlogs. So the idea is to be like, Judge, this is my diligent, good faith efforts. I can't get that material, so to speak. Okay. A longer extension after that requires a motion of showing good, good cause, which has a definition. Now, here's the um, here's the uh, thing. I mean, the mathematics of this are starting to stack up. On probably around 80% of the cases, you now you got 20 days on a DAT. Then you're going to have a little bit of felony complaint time. Then you might have an indictment time. Then you're going to have maybe 30-day extension after that. And then you can even do an extension after that. And my, my sense is, during the first year or so, I don't know all the judges in the state, but you know, may, maybe they'll take, I don't know. I'm hopeful that maybe there'll be a little bit of pity as we get our systems changed. And they recognize that, there's, that, that our diligent good faith efforts are underway. They're, they're system-wide diligent good faith efforts. It doesn't come down to the individual in the first year. It's really going to be a system change. Maybe they won't take pity whatsoever and they'll enforce this to letter the T. But my point is, now you're really stacking up this time where you're getting to 65 plus days to uh, accomplish your discovery obligations. That's not the issue. I mean, there's, it's an argument. It's documentation, documenting your efforts and, and arguments, but that's not the issue. The issue is speedy trial, which I'll get to. That's the key. Automatic discovery has to precede a plea to a crime. This uh, confuses people a little bit. Um, bottom line is I don't think we're ever doing automatic discovery for the plea. We're going to be doing automatic discovery because we are having to do automatic discovery and within 15 days it has to go there. So unless you're like lightning fast on all your cases and always have a plea offer ready to go, you, this, this, this might irk you and this will slow down things a hell of a lot. But remember it's discovery by itself that was slowing things a hell of a lot because you were doing it anyway. And once you have that system firing you have, to, you have to get it out there. So the bottom line is they have to have, the, read this a different way, they have to have the materials you were going to give them within 15 days or whatever, they have to have them at least seven days before um, you can reject a plea offer on. I note that this is only where there's a plea offer from the prosecution if they want to plea to the charge. They actually don't need discovery to plea to the charge. Very interesting. A defendant may waive these time provisions and discovery as a whole, but the prosecution can't condition a guilty plea offer on a waiver. Very interesting. A um, couple points here. The words are guilty plea offer. I, I want everybody, first of all, before I forget this, because I forget this all the time, simple issue, but have your prosecutors know and do it. ACDs, ACODs, 170.56, 170.55, okay? Those are adjournments. The case is still actually live. If you don't, in part of the ACD, say, and you're waiving discovery, then you're getting yourself into a little bit of a mess there, okay? It's simple because it's not a guilty plea offer. It's not a plea offer at all. Just to say, we're giving an ACD. 
but the defendant has to waive their discovery rights because I'm not doing it in 15 days to give it to ACD. Okay? Just that's easy in, easy out, but I keep on forgetting to mention that. Um, violations. Could you condition the guilty plea offer on a, on a violation? It has to be a plea to a crime. Um, again, it, it's basically how prepared you are and how you interact with your defense bar. But my main point on this is you, this is an ethical trap, okay? I could easily see a situation where prosecutors are like, listen, I would love to give you a plea offer, but I got all this discovery I got to do, you know? Can, we, can you help me out here? That's a huge problem. We all know less than scrupulous uh, defense attorneys who will take us to task on that. It's a bad environment. So we've already sent out some instruction to our staff. You don't even want to joke about it. You don't want to even joke that, oh, discovery. Like, I'd love to help you out, but discovery. You, do, you don't even want to say this is a burden. You're going to be setting yourself up for an ethical trap. Even if it's just, well, I can help you out. You know, I'll, I'll waive. I wouldn't fall for it. Um, I think uh, we have to protect our ADAs very, very uh, uh, crucially in this regard. And the only way you can protect them is, again, by making sure there's a, there's a well-oiled system up and running that it's going to come whether or not there's a plea offer. Okay? And usually that's the way most systems work. Once you have it up and running, it's, just, it's, it's going to be coming. Actually, we slow things down to say, no, wait, stop, stop, stop. Okay, rule six, automatic discovery provisions may be modified by a court upon a showing of good cause. So... This is extending time periods, but this is also what protects your witnesses, victims, um, information. Um, denied, restricted, condition, or deferred. They have a lot of power under the um, 245.70 provisions, okay? Um, you can hold back things. You might, want, you might seek to ask, you know, listen, I don't want to give this victim's contact information yet for these reasons. Can I hold it back? If a protective order is in place, yes, you can file a certificate of compliance. Okay? And you can state ready, therefore. The uh, request for a protective order is sort of interesting. The court has to conduct a hearing within three days. There's this whole thing that hasn't really been resolved in my head, or at least I, and I know our appeals shop has been brought in on this, where the application for the protective order can, of course, be ex parte. I don't know about this hearing. I don't know at this hearing if the defendant has the right to be there and say, listen, I got a CI who's the defendant's best friend. And if we reveal it to the defendant, he's in trouble. So I need... It sounds stupid, but let's all remember this law was kind of stupid when it was written. It was just not well written. There's gaps throughout it. So this is one of the bigger gaps, is that we don't know what this hearing looks like. I know that it can be sealed. I don't know if it can be ex parte. Before I go further with the rules, now it's time to show again the examples of what's in the automatic discovery bucket, okay? Um, and again, I highlight these are meant to be for instances under the law. They're no longer the absolutes, but they do include them. Uh, statements you've seen before, grand jury transcripts is a big frustrating thing that basically has the risk of eroding all grand jury secrecy because the second they're out you're making copies of it and you're preparing to ship it off to the defendant it's also a thing that's more probably scorable or scalable for your county budget estimates because you know what grand jury contractors charge and you know what the expedition fees are so that if they want some sort of bill that's the first place I would look for Civilian witness names and adequate contact information and the designation. So you need a witness list right away. No penalty. It's actually written in the statute elsewhere. No penalty if you 
over, say, I'm going to call all these witnesses, and then you don't, you don't call all of them. So that's going to be pretty much an over-disclose situation. Um, adequate contact information, we're using emails, okay? It's a non-invasive, non-physically intercepting way, and that's the way we're talking to our cops right now, is listen to cell phone, it's pretty invasive, it's hard to change a cell phone number, it's hard to shake somebody, I don't want, but an email address, they can make it up right then. We've even had some conversations about booking a domain name, and I know some other people have been doing this as well, about booking a domain name and pre-populating with arrest numbers. So like 2020 AR for arrest number 0001 at Gmail, well, not, it'd be whatever the suffix is, like at discoverycompliance at nassau.org, whatever it would be. And then, you know, just having sequential numbers. And that way when an officer's out on the street and interacting with a friend, here's your email address. It's already pre-booked for you. Here's your password to get into it. This is how everybody's gonna contact you, okay? Hard conversations need to be had about how you're going to do it. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you want to just have your officers collect your cell phone or whatever. Or maybe it's part of that dialogue that we were talking about before where they're asking the defendants for their preferred method of contact. So do the same thing, cops. Look this way and ask your victims and witnesses what's their preferred method of contact. But you should always have a sort of a safe method of contact available for them. And I would suggest email since there's no risk of physical interception. There's also memorialization of any efforts back and forth to contact. Okay. Statements of witnesses, including Rosario. Expert witness names, business address, CV, list of publications, proficiency test results for a 10-year look back. So I'm going to leave that to Rachel. Are you going to cover that? Yeah, yeah she's going to cover that. Think about your forensic science examiners. Tapes and electronic recordings and the designation of which are to be, intended to be introduced at evidence trial. If it go, there's certain provisions where if it becomes voluminous, you can turn over what uh, you're intending to introduce. Um, that's a big strain on your communication shops. Um, there is a provision in 245.55 sub 3, I think it is, I'm probably wrong, but there's a provision that that's where the arresting officer or lead detective at the point when they file an accusatory instrument has to tell you in writing the full list of this stuff, okay? So that's another thing to bring up with your police. Again, that's in my green sheet written materials. They, they have to actually give you in writing the full list of NCPD, or not NCPD, sorry, PD uh, electronic recordings. Photographs and drawings, you've seen that before. You've seen the stolen property. Full documentation of forensic analysis, I'll leave that to Rachel. All Brady, Giglio, and Geisland material. You can redact confidential informant and undercover uh, information. And this was a, this is going to be a big thing. I, I actually would, would suggest that we have a subcommittee on this because the definition of confidential informant is not anywhere in the law. It doesn't exist. And so I would say that if I have somebody who had their house burglarized and say, I really don't want to testify. It's like, well, listen, you know, you only have to testify at the point of litigation. Like the conversation we like to have, 97% of cases plea out. You might never have to testify. Well, if I tell this to you, you know, can you just promise me that I won't if I cooperate, will you promise me that I won't be called unless trial? Yes, I can promise that. Have you just minted a confidential informant? Are they relaying you information and confidence? There's nothing that says no to that question. There could be easy abuse of that and judges back, and this whole thing backfiring. And that's why I think it's very important that maybe the profession sort of adopt a standard first about what a confidential informant is. You know, some idea might be that you, you set it at the line of when you're under business duty to report. If you're a loss prevention officer and somebody stole from Sears or whatever, yeah, you have to tell the cops what happened. You have to tell, you expect, it's your business duty. But if you're 
somebody who was held up a knife point on the street, and you're terrified, and you only want, on condition of remaining anonymous until you have to absolutely be revealed, that's the only way that you want to be revealed? That, I would argue, could be termed a confidential informant. We need the right case law on it, John, okay? Or Dan or Tammy. We need a good case law on that, but we also need a smart decision so that nobody over-abuses that and we get the right, the right decision, the right case on that first. Okay? Okay. I'll leave this to Rachel to cover up. There's more. Uh, there's more rewards and inducements that you have to turn over. I would call that Giglio information, but they, they double-dipped it. Uh, list of all tangible property and the type of possession. Application orders and returns with inventories. Returns actually is not there. It says inventories, but I call those returns. That's a big strain on your, probably your law enforcement operations, that they need to come back very quickly with what they seize as far as they want, because you need it for your package, and you're deemed to possess it already. Remember that big thing. If it's law enforcement, they're under your control, and that and clause that I was highlighting before takes over. You can't file the certificate of compliance without it. But if it's a Macy's surveillance video, you can, because they're not under your uh, protection or control. All right, so records of, of judgment and conviction for all defendants and potential civilian police witnesses. There was a change here that I want to highlight. It used to be in 240 that you know, 240.44 and 240.45, if known, and nothing herein shall require you to fingerprint your witnesses, etc. They took out the if known language here. So it's records of conviction, whether you know it or not, for your potential civilian witnesses. The reason why I know is intentionally they took it out because they left it for the second one. If known existence of any pending criminal cases which is sort of stupid because as soon as you have to run them to find out what their conviction record is, you'll see their pending cases, hopefully. Okay. Date, time, and place. For all VTL offenses, your calibration records, your certificate, inspection, repair, and maintenance records, I highlight all, it used to be VTL offenses charging misdemeanors, it's all VTL offenses. Think of your speed guns on your 1180Ds, okay? Uh, it's a good time to start shaving things off the cases. Perhaps that's a, well, a strategy some people want to go down. Um, time, place, and manner of violation of any of trespass laws and digital or electronic evidence taken. I want to just harp on this for a second that the calibration records also have to be for six months prior to and six months after the test was conducted. It looks stupid at first because you think you have to have a time machine to comply with the 15-day limitation. They built in an out clause that, of course, is the, the time provisions of 15 days do not apply to the six months after. But just be aware, when you get to trial, you have to go back and get those calibration records. What this means, basically, is every piece of equipment that you have at the PD, whatever, has to have a file, has to have a deck on it. Not unlike forensic science labs. They're gonna have, all equipment needs to be filed and cataloged, and because every time that's used, you have a new six months back and six months forward. So you're going to have this growing file, like a Giglio file, on a piece of machinery. And you've got to get the most recent one of those with that year span based around the loci of your locus of your event to disclose prior to trial. So now we get to discovery and speedy trial. This is the rule where it all comes down to. Rule seven. You cannot declare ready for trial until you filed a certificate of compliance with your automatic discovery obligations. Okay. So, all that 
extension here, if you indict it, it goes away. If you file the motion, it goes away. If you say exceptionally voluminous, it goes away. That's for discovery. So you can, and we will. We will be absolutely, as we adjust our systems, we will absolutely be playing that clock out. As you're doing it, you are running out of 30-30 time. You can't be ready unless you've first done your discovery. Okay? Now, the remedy for tolling is going to be found in 3034G, which, again, has that exceptional circumstances language right there, which meets slightly that exceptionally voluminous language from the... Um, from the uh, discovery provisions that I was talking about uh, when, you, when you're going from the 15 days into the 30-day extra time. So I would say that any single time you're doing a 245-70 motion or any time you're explaining yourself to the judge about an exceptionally voluminous case, you say that word exceptional so much and you get that judge to say back to you, I agree, that is exceptional. If they put on the record exceptional, you just helped out yourself because now you have exceptional circumstances relating to case preparation. So remember, at that hearing, whatever it's going to be called, the Maury Kleinbart hearing, you need to be saying, Judge, wouldn't you agree that this is exceptionally voluminous? And if they say it back to you, you won't. That's the goal. 3034A is also very helpful. 3034A, pretrial motions are excludable. Okay? It is not just defense motions. Not, not, not. Case law already done. Ha, ha. 3034A any motion stops the clock. So in my green sheet, I have some examples. There's motions to preserve evidence wherever it may be. Even your motion for a protective order stops it. You we're going to have to keep track like we've never kept track before. And I'm not saying, absolutely not saying, file frivolous motions. But there is a lot of stuff in here that does require a motion to be filed. And do not be shy. I would actually argue that you probably want some protective order for motions ready for every arraignment on a certain classification of things, which stops the clock. Okay? There's a, a smaller provision, which I, I, I cited in the green sheet, which is a motion to preserve evidence for your Walmarts and your Sears and, the things, and your homeowners that are outside your control. File them. If your police does not give you the stuff in the request, file that order to show cause or motion to compel, because that stops the clock. Okay, there are things you can do under 3034A to help you out. Okay, this is stupid. Prosecutors can't declare ready unless we certify that every count we're charging is sufficient. That's what judges used to do. We have to do it. I think it's just dumb. People are worried about this whole idea that after uh, you file your certificate of good faith compliance, that some zombie discovery will pop up. Oh, my God, I didn't realize the issue was still alive. And you file it, and they say, well, then your whole underlying case was invalid. I have some theories on that, too. But this is actually what concerns me more, is if later a judge says, well, one of your counts was sufficient, and you certified that it was sufficient. So now I'm charging with 30-30 for all that time, because you didn't have a sufficient case ever. So that, that concerns me, too. But boy, is that stupid. Um, I have nothing more to say about that than that's stupid. All right, I'm reviewing the rules now. Uh, just to recap. Remember, most important one, forget about that list. It's long, and, the, and, and don't allow your police agencies to get so, or your ADAs to get so focused on that list that they forget rule one. Rule one is it's all items of information that relate to the subject matter of the case, and also do not let your ADAs for a second forget that word and. That and 
severs private entities from you. Anything that's in the private space, yeah, you'd probably need it to be ready for trial. You do not need it to file a certificate. You do not need it to turn over your, fulfill your automatic discovery obligations. You do not need it to give a plea offer. Remember that. If there's one thing you remember from this lecture, remember that. Okay. Prosecutors are deemed to possess all that they have. They got it. You got it. Okay. They shall. Uh, they have to give you what they have, so that your theoretical, your legal fiction is legal reality. It still be a legal fiction as far as constructive possession, but you have to, of course, that's the big thing that we talk with our police departments now, not wait, uh, to get those exchanges uh, down. Uh, I can tell you for Nassau, we're doing a lot of efforts to try to get them to reduce paperwork. We have 25 local police agencies. I'm sure everybody here has more, but paperwork reduction is going to be huge. Automatic discovery has to be disclosed as soon as practical with a limit of 15 days after arraignment on any form of accusatory instruments. Remind your felony complaints that could impact your grand jury disclosure. Where you have to be sharper, you have to be sharper on converting your felonies, if you're going to convert them, or indicting your felonies. So the decision making in those first 15 days is crucial because you'll know where your discovery obligations lie if you can make that decision, if you have that protocol in line. Okay? Has to proceed a plea to a crime. Remember your ACD, I always want to double say the ACDs. Your ACDs are still active cases, and you have to, you have to file your discovery unless you get them to waive it. Um, automatic discovery provisions may be modified by a court upon a showing of good cause. You can't declare ready without certifying compliance, and you can't declare that stupid one. And that's the equation that I just want. It didn't come out as sharp and red, but that's the equation I want everybody to remember is you need automatic discovery for trial readiness. You need automatic discovery for plea offers. But trial readiness and plea offers, not the same thing. It's that whole swath of things that if you see a case going one way, you, you can tamp down on your efforts to acquire the known universe of goods. If you see it going the other way, fire your motions to preserve evidence to Walmart. Okay? Stop that clock while you're at it. Supplement the discovery. In Justice Task Force, there was an idea, there was a construct, there was a dream that there was going to be two buckets of automatic discovery and supplemental discovery, and each would have a lot of things in it. This legislative enactment ignored that. Everything went to automatic discovery. Supplemental discovery was left with one item. Well, multiple, Sandoval, Ventimiglia, Molina. Okay? And supplemental discovery is tied to trial, 15 days prior to trial. Oh. Actually, I like that. They said 15 days prior to the first scheduled trial date, because we have those. We all have those, right? We can rely on those. So good cause. The only compliment I pay to the statute is I actually like the way they wrote their good cause section. I think everything that you would want to be in your good cause uh, application is there. And I, I really applaud uh, the Queen's work on this in writing that huge protective order motion based on this statute. Because, boy, is it impressive. So if you haven't checked out uh, John Castellano's um, uh, form motion of good cause, it's fantastic. Okay? Um, bad sanctions. Discovery now has the express statutory direction that is the force and effect of a court order, and there's all sorts of case-related sanctions up to and including dismissal. Okay? And that's the thing to tell your cops. 
Because I, as, as I've noted, we sort of started out on the same footing. That was, was my experience. We started out on the same footing. We were the same rats stuck in a maze trying to find the cheese. And then as the pressure is more and more on the DAs to be sort of the ombudsman of this, this thing, because everything funnels through us, now we're the nagging ones. We're sort of now, they're, they're seeing us more through the prism of the legislature. At least this is my feeling, that we're part of this. We're, we're, we're not standing with them in protest anymore, and now we're the ones nagging them for information. So one thing to remind your police officers, we're still on the same side, and the reason why we're asking you for this is not because we are so happy or able, you know, but we're trying our best to comply with the law, and if we don't, this is what's going to happen to your cases and all your hard work. Okay? And finally, ugly concerns. So the automatic disclosure time frames, of course, we talked about this, pre-grand jury disclosure might be a thing. A defendant has to be furnished with their statements um, that they gave to law enforcement within 40 hours before they testify. Now, we had a division in our office for a while where on some cases we would do 7, 10, 30 notice of arraignments on cases, and in other cases we'd hold them back because we don't want the defendants on major cases to conform their uh, testimony in the grand jury to their evidence. We want to catch them in lies. It doesn't matter anymore. Whatever the philosophical debate was, I know some offices did it one way, some offices did it another way, some had mixed bag like we were. You have to give it over 48 hours before they are scheduled to testify. I have a prediction here that they're all going to say, yes, I'm going to testify on the 190.50. I'm, I'm testifying. And then they change their mind at the last second. So just keep that in mind. You know that annoying thing that always happens, that we always fight against with the 190.50 notices where you're waiting to vote the case and they're, they're waiting until the last minute to tell you? That's going to be every case now. It's going to be miserable. All right, so defendant may... I'm sorry, I'm cheering up the room here. Uh, defendant may move upon notice any impact person or entity for court-ordered acts as a crime scene. Now, here's what I don't like about this statute. And again, I always use that phrase so exceptionally, but... What I don't like about this, stat, this, this part of the statute is that language right there. Upon notice to any impacted person or entity. Why I don't like it, first of all, the, the, the precept of having sort of a, a, a rape victim have somebody be even able to file a motion to come back into their home and actually possibly get it, that's traumatic, that's horrible. The more traumatic thing is the fact that you get a letter. The DA gets notified, but the individual the landlord, the homeowner, they have to get notified too. And I can predict right now the conversations you're going to be have, having saying, you know, I just got this in, a letter in the mail that they want to come. And I have, if I care about it, uh, I have to show up in court to personally fight. Do I need a lawyer? Are you my lawyer? No. I'm notified separately. I will be arguing, but... It's your right. They gave you notice. It's your right. So if you want to be double sure, you can hire an attorney. Oh, great. Well, I read you know, Gideon v. Wainwright, Sixth Amendment. I get a right to counsel, right? No, because you're a crime victim, and Gideon v. Wainwright only applies to defendants. So that's a big problem for me as, as, as a person, as a lawyer. The fact that we're going to have a lot of victims and witnesses who have no right to counsel and have to pay potentially for an attorney when the defendant has a right to counsel and does not. So that's, that's the first clause right there that really tramples upon, well, there's a lot of clauses that trample on victims' rights, but let's not forget this one. When we're talking to our victim and witness groups, remember this clause. The clause that says, basically, how do we uh, respond to those victims and witnesses when they ask us that question, do I need a lawyer to represent my personal interests? 
and who's going to pay for it. Defense must get an opportunity to be heard whenever the prosecution files a certificate of good faith compliance with discovery obligations. So you, and you know, I used to look at this as a, as a, as a vice, as something bad. Um, you know, I, I, I looked at this as, you know, they're going to play games. They're going to say, I don't, believe, I, don't, I don't believe this or they're ready. Judge, I'll keep this as an open question. I'm never agreeing to saying that they're ready because I don't know. And how would they know, honestly? But here's the advantage of the situation for us. You need to make a really good record at this time. When you file that certificate of good faith compliance with your discovery obligations, boy, is that your opportunity to cover yourself for this next issue that I'm going to actually get to. Where is it? Zombie discovery. Okay. We're all worried about that time period when after you file the certificate of good faith compliance, you find a new item, a new piece of information that comes at you, and now you're frightened. That's why I call it zombie discovery. It's, it's new. It's, the issues come back to life, and now you're frightened of it. What do you do with it? You, of course, disclose it. But what does that do to your declaration that it was dead, that the issue was dead? Okay? The, um, we're worried that that will undo the certificate of compliance. The 3030 will just wash through, and then our cases will be dismissed. Um, here's why that opportunity to be heard is our opportunity to be heard. Because at that point when you file, treat that seriously. When the court inquires as to your actual readiness, when you file a certificate of good faith compliance, you're certifying that you've done everything diligent, good faith, everything that you know is done. It's to the person. And I think we've written the, 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 the document, the form I've seen that way, write it to the ADA. The ADA certifies. Because it's your job. Good. Because if you get a good hearing out of that and you tell your efforts in some articulable way, and whether, whatever the defense says, you're telling the judge, and the judge says, it looks like you have done a diligent, good faith job of everything you've known about. That's the, that's the record you want. Because then, when the zombie discovery comes out, and, they, and you say, judge, I didn't know about this before, and here it is, at least you have that argument. Because it doesn't go to the actual readiness. It goes to your, it goes to the validity of the certificate. And if that, and that certificate can be achieved validly with your knowledge, with your personal knowledge, not the world, not the universe's knowledge, yours. So treat those hearings very seriously and make a good record. The seventh and final ugly concern is that freestanding traffic infractions are subject to discovery rules and potentially speedy trial rules. Why do I say that? In 240.20 sub 1, the one we know right now, it's triggered by simplified information charging a misdemeanor. That's one of its delineated things. 245-1A, simplified information, period, well, comma. Simplified information, okay? That's everything. And there's a lot of good cases about discovery and traffic infractions that all say, if the legislature had intended for discovery to apply to traffic infractions, they would have not said simplified information charging a misdemeanor. <laughs> so they changed it. So it's it's um, so that one I'm pretty sure of, and we really freaked our traffic people out. Actually, they independently came to the same conclusion, but then we met and we all freaked each other out. Because what that essentially means is, you know, if they have to do their automatic discovery obligations on their uh, calibration logs of their speed guns, and think about a decibel meter for a, a noise ordinance ticket, you know, all your municipal attorneys or whoever's handling your deputy village, some places state troopers stand up on their own cases. So. Think about all that. Here's my Giglio information, Judge. I, I had a misconduct you know, as an officer when in 1997. Think about that. So 
and think about their witness. Here's my witness list. It's me. Like, you know, so it, it could be very complicated, but there's a lot of stuff that has to be done. It has to be done, and there's no way around it, and they, they wrote it that way. So the freestanding traffic infractions are subject to discovery rules. So you need to tell your justice courts, you need to tell your town attorneys, village attorneys, this could be a huge revenue drop. And again, I brought this up at the legislative committee, that could be one of the things that incites a lot of change uh, next year, if they want to go back. I say potentially speedy trial rules, because boy, is this just, I think Rob Conflitti said, ham-fisted. Uh, and I've heard something similar from OCA. They amended 3030 to include traffic infractions um, uh, uh, as violations uh, within the definition of offense, so 30 days. However, um, so they give you a 30-day clock on, on all this stuff for every traffic infraction. However, there is a reading of that statute, and boy, is it limited, that basically means that that's only traffic infractions that are associated with criminal actions where it's a, a lesser on a misdemeanor charge or a violation, some, some, some other charge is there, and when that 3030 is out, the traffic infractions go as well. It all depends on the interpretation of the term criminal action. What's a criminal action? If criminal action does not apply to traffic court, then 3030 won't apply. If a traffic, if you, if you getting a traffic ticket and showing up at a local criminal court starts a criminal action, then it does, and we're screwed. Um, and looking at what a criminal action is under the CPL, though, that's pretty broad. Um, it actually is written that, yeah, if you get a traffic ticket and you show up at a village court, that is a criminal action. Um, so that's a, something to be explored, you know, as, as time goes on. Um, I don't have an answer for you right now on that. We'll see how that comes. But it's got everybody relatively well concerned. What I can tell you absolutely is the discovery uh, obligations are triggered in. So... As soon as the public figures that out, there won't be too much more uh, speedy takeover revenues. Again, we got plenty of time. Um, get up and over that hill. I'm going to just very br briefly gloss through before Rachel steps up um, some of the things that passed. The mugshot reforms we know about, it's more of the spirit of the law. They didn't really do it too well. The, it's really about a FOIL exemption there. So if you want to release mugshots, you still can. Um, I think their idea was the Internet's forever, and let's not condemn people. Not too bad. In Nassau County, we, we, we've stopped um, releasing mugshots unless there's a pound. I saw that Westchester County, I don't know if Westchester County is here, but I, I thought they had a very nice policy written on their website about what they're doing with mugshots in light of the reforms. But just keep in mind, actually, you're not mandated to change any operations except on a FOIL request, you have the right to re retain your mugshots. That's about it. Um, the forfeiture reforms were covered very well yesterday, so I won't re repeat them. Uh, the use of force reforms, the DCGS has now promulgated a model policy, uh, and your, every, every state and local um, agency has new reporting requirements, has to adopt a model policy, or policy uh, uh, congruent with that model policy. And some sentencing reforms. There's a 364 day rule on class A, unclassified or non-penal law misdemeanors. They now have a ceiling of 364. If you say 365 or A in a year, it doesn't matter because they wrote that in the law too that you said it, but you didn't mean it. You meant 364. Um, and 440s, that's the bigger thing. That's for your appeals shops and, and your people who handle a lot of uh, post-judgment uh, motions. 440s are now allowed retroactively for people who um, had the 365 on them. Shock incarceration is now available for people who burglarize homes because they love people who burglarize homes. Like, so shock and rob ones and attempts of those crimes are... Um, eligible for shock. And I just want to end on this, this note. 
It's in, it's in some of the materials. They actually included attempts here of those crimes. They did not include attempts in the qualifying offense rubric for bail. And Barry Kamen's, in his Law Journal article, picked up on this as well. That attempts of Berg II and attempts of Rob II are violence. They're violent felonies. They're covered by a different section of qualifying offense. So while you cannot ask for bail on a Berg II of a dwelling, you can ask for bail on an attempted Berg II of a dwelling. You can. <coughs> I leave it to your judgment. Some judges will say people. But some judges who will say, no. Nice. I'm going to do it. So remember, so remember your, so remember your attempted Berg twos. Remember your attempted Berg ones. That can bring you back in the fold a little bit. Okay. I leave you with that parting, encouraging thought. And now, Susan, did you want to come? Did you introduce Rachel already? Okay. Go for it. <laughs>